I'm joined on the show tonight by Matt Bickford, and Matt's written what I would suggest is probably the best book on hollow and rounds and molding planes in general. And Matt, maybe just by means of introduction, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, you know what you do and how you got into this. Yeah, so I'm Matt Bickford. I make molding planes as my job. I've been doing it and pursuing customers for almost 11 years right now. The way I got into to using molding planes was I made a lot of reproduction furniture, and I, you know, as I got into the craft of woodworking, what started out as copying wood choices turns into turned into copying proportions, which turned into copying curves and copying carving. And a lot of times what would happen is I'd get to the end of a project and at that stage I would go to apply the molding profile and I had settled on a series of router bits that, that were the, the profiles that I used. And a lot of times when I was copying a reproduction piece, I'd make something close in size to what I wanted, but I never uh, was really able to make exactly what I wanted with the molding router bits that I had. And so I became aware of hollows and rounds as a means towards as a means to infinity. And you know, that's really what, what hollows and rounds allows the end user to do is make any molding profile with a single series of tools. And so I purchased my first set of antique hollows and rounds. Um, and I got them in my possession. And I realized that even though the tools could do anything. And everything, I wasn't really able to do anything with them because I didn't have a strategy for going from A to Z uh, with the tools. The first time that you have a, a pair of hollows and rounds in your hands, it's not necessarily apparent how you produce a simple profile, let alone a more complex profile. And so through my time at the bench, I became or I came across a strategy of producing predictable and repeatable shapes. And the book is kind of a product of not only my own pursuits in my basement, but also my pursuits in trying to explain that process to other people, whether it's through or at shows or on my blog. The book was really a product of trying to explain that process to hundreds of people over the course of the first few years that I was producing planes professionally. Just going back, you know, you said that you were doing uh, reproductions there. Was that something you were doing professionally or was that a hobby for you? Uh, it was entirely a hobby. And so I was a derivatives trader prior to this. That was my previous job. Uh, and I did that for almost 10 years. And I left that job and started pursuing customers for the first time to make the molding planes. I was doing the uh, the furniture reproduction just as a hobby. Okay. And, and that's quite a change. I mean, I actually, I used to do the IT for uh, some trading guys when I was working at the bank. And, you know, that sitting in your chair all day, you know, edge of your seat kind of stuff, you know, watching a whole bunch of screens, you know, to doing something that's completely different and tactile. That must have been quite a change that. Yeah, it was a big change. You know, it, it like you said there, it's, you know, the difference between being in a room that was a few acres big and constantly interacting with people next to you or over the phone, constantly interacting with the floors or different brokers, and uh, now working by myself in my house. It, it's certainly a big change. But, you know, what was fun at 23 uh, wasn't as fun at 33. One last question on those reproductions. Was there any particular period that you were interested in or any particular style? Yeah, so I got into woodworking through a, a friend of my wife's family. I had never really made anything woodworking related. And I went to his shop and he had a sleigh bed uh, that he was making for a customer. And the sleigh bed had one of the volutes carved and one of them laid out. And at that point, I immediately fell in love with the idea of making furniture, making things for myself. And he had a Chippendale chair that he had made for himself. And I had set that as my goal to make, to make something like that someday of that quality. And so I got into, you know, trying to pursue that specific piece, that Chippendale chair. 
And so, you know, it started out as making, you know, a changing table or picture frames or various things, you know, everything, every project evolved with, with that end chair in mind. Um, and so in answer to your question, a lot of what I've done has been, you know, Queen Anne or Chippendale reproductions simply because I look at those pieces and wonder what they would look like if I made them. And, you know, someday I'll make that chair and it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what would look like when I made it. Well, I did see your, I've been following you on Instagram and I've obviously seen your progress on your latest project. And, uh, that, that certainly looks pretty spectacular from, you know, from this end of the camera. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, what you inspired with there and what, what you're doing, um, for the listeners who obviously can't see the project. Well, I, I should say that uh, that high boy that I'm currently making, um, I guess it's in the same vein as every project that I've done. Is I, I've never really done a, a hobby woodworking project where you know every aspect of the the process I've done before. I always like trying new things, and so as I was considering the next project that I would do as a hobby, I saw I wanted to make a high boy. I saw that as something where there was a lot of things involved that I've never done before. And so that's what, what I'm doing now. And that's why I chose it. Not necessarily because I want that specific piece. I know my wife would prefer to have it, an island in the kitchen or several other things. The last thing our living room needs is another set of ball and claw feet. But it's you know that's where my interest is, is in trying new things. And so, you know, whether it's the veneering for the door fronts that I've never done any veneering or, you know, a lot of the carving, that specific carving I've not done before, the cock beating and certain things. There, there's a lot there that I haven't done. And then ultimately, I'm going to try and carve the human form in a bust and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> you know, what fascinates me about the actual craft of woodworking is there's so many new things to do. You know, it's that someday I'd like to make a boat. Someday I'd like to make a mandolin. You know, there's so many things to, to do. And, and that's really why, you know, in terms of the, the molding planes and, and how the molding planes relate to that is when you're making something, you don't want to be limited by the tooling that you have. And once the hollows and rounds are introduced into your work, you know, you don't have to choose a project based upon whether you can or cannot make something as simple as a molding profile. Um, you know, it's a, it's a small adornment, but it, it, it does define how the piece, how many pieces look. And, and I personally wouldn't want to be limited um, or forced to make adaptations that I wish I wouldn't have to make based on the tooling that's either in my shop or offered by various router bit companies. It's quite interesting. I think the video that I would suggest got me into hand tool woodworking was an IT presentation, actually. I think it's a reasonably famous one of a guy talking about closure. And most of the presentation is about him talking about using hand tools rather than spinning blades. And it's kind of an argument for getting back down to some simple, profound tools rather than using these higher order tools that by their very nature dictate how you do the work. And he'd taken the the whole conversation through to IT tools and, you know, getting right down into low level tools and databases, etc. But you know, I watched this and it, it looked like magic. I mean, I think that it's safe to say at the time you know, I was fascinated by a router being able to make a quarter round profile. I thought that was miraculous because the things I'd thrown together before that were, you know, pretty square and pretty boxy. So there's that element of saying, well, this route is fantastic, but it then becomes quite limiting because those bits are expensive. And, you know, I, I never went and grabbed a whole bunch of molding bits. I think I just got those, you know, traditional ogie bits that would, you know, be sold at a normal box store. And yet, you know, you, you get a couple of sets of hollow and rounds. I mean, I'd probably argue, you know, if you just got two sets of hollow and rounds in a reasonable size, you can make an incredible number of um, profiles with those. You really don't have to compromise if, if you've got four, of, you know, four, four planes sitting on the shelf. There's a lot that you can do with the two pairs, certainly. But it, uh, just in response to, to what you were saying about, uh, you know, the handwork and hand tools, I think I disappoint two groups of woodworkers, and one of them is the the hand tool only crowd. 
in that uh, a lot of people assume that because of what I make, um, I must be a hand tool only hobbyist, at least, and that I'm not. Um, you know, the, the hollows and rounds really afford the end user that idea of infinity. And I think that hand tools offer that idea of infinity. You know, if you had a six inch joiner, um, you'd want an eight inch joiner. If you have an eight inch joiner, you'd want a 12 inch joiner. And if you have a 12 inch joiner, it's pr- still not as wide as your 18 or 24 inch wide planer. And you're limited by the width of the, the stock selection that you have based on the, the machinery that you have. And so if you have that 12 inch joiner and 24 inch planer, you're not going to be able to flatten the top of a table. And so if you're able to use hand tools, you know, you're able to, to flatten not only, you know, six or eight inch wide pieces, but you're also able to flatten on the, the rare occasion where you want to work a 30 inch wide piece of, of material. And in the same way that bench planes afford the, the user the ability to flatten an infinitely wide surface, molding planes, you know, specifically hollows and rounds, afford that same idea of infinity to the end user. And that's really, I think, what hand tools excel at, at least in my shop, is they don't take the place of my jointer or my planer, but when the jointer or planer don't work because of the the limitation of their width that's where the hand tools come into play and that's the same with with the hollows and rounds also you know i'll never get rid of my router i use my router um, but at the same time you know i'm not actively buying new bits and i'm also not you know making molding profiles that i don't want to make you know i'm not limited by Freud selection of router bits. And if, um, if I want to make something, you know, an exact reproduction, or if I want to make something that's changed slightly or drastically, I can do that with ease just by using different planes, all part of the same set. I love that uh, description of, you know, offering that the possibilities of infinity. I think that's one I'm going to bank and remember. If someone was getting into them, you know, I think there's probably some arguments for a few good tools rather than going and just buying chunks of, you know, um, mismatched things at antique stores and whatever. And I, I'll have to be honest, I'm guilty of, you know, grabbing a lot of stuff on eBay and antique stores and whatever. But if you were suggesting to someone to get into it today, would you be suggesting they go antique or would you suggest they grab, you know, a, a couple of good quality new ones so that they're not frustrated by the, by the tools there? Well, so my conclusion for myself was uh, actually neither of those. Um, You know, I started with antiques and um, a lot of people will start with antiques, but I I settled on making my own. And so that's really what I encourage people, you know, buying new is, you know, not necessarily in everybody's budget and tuning antiques is not necessarily in everybody's skill set. And so I... My conclusion um, was was to make my own, and though I started with antique planes, uh, the first the the first planes that I made were better than any antique that I had tuned. And so, you know, it really depends on on what your goal is, as far as you know, introducing this this type of tool into your shop. You know, an antique plane, ninety five percent of antique planes can be tuned to the same standard that. You know, the new planes that I sell arrive at, but, you know, getting them to make that leap from the way that they're purchased to their full potential is not necessarily apparent. There's not a lot of information out there on the Internet as far as tuning wooden planes goes. But the first time that that you make your plane, I made my first planes with the following the instruction on Larry Williams DVD sold by Lee Nielsen, and it's called uh, Making Traditional Side Escapement Planes. And so I made my first planes following that instruction. And, you know, if, if you're asking about this type of tool, you probably have the woodworking skill to actually make the plane. You know, the hardest part is coming to terms with the idea that you're going to spend hours on a very small project. But, you know, for me, in answer to your question, for me, my conclusion was to make my own. 
But again, you know, you can tune any antique to the same standard. It's just a matter of, you know, how do you get from, again, the way you bought it to to reaching the plane's full potential. It's usually not just a matter of sharpening the blade and going to work for its performance to equal, you know, what I sell or what Larry sells. There's a lot of technology that's in the two pieces of wood and the, the piece of steel that is the the plane. And a lot can go wrong, you know, in the basements and barns of our world over the last 200 years that can affect the performance of those planes. And fixing them, again, is not necessarily obvious for somebody that, that doesn't have a reasonable amount of experience with the tools and the technology. And Matt, with that, you know, I actually own that uh, DVD and I was fascinated in terms of watching it. And I must be honest, in terms of making planes, I've made a couple of scrub planes now and I've uh, made a dado plane, you know, recently. But when I was looking at your website, it seems like the time commitment that, you know, you kind of putting there to making a set of hollow and rounds in a course is, you know, a five-day class. And when I made a scrub plane, it kind of took me a weekend. So let's call it two days. So to spend two and a half days per plane, and I assume that in a class, you're obviously working with lots of people. So there's certainly some inefficiency with that. That's not really a a very big time commitment to put aside to making your own. I mean, you could certainly accomplish that, you know, on, on a couple of weekends in a month and, you know, still have some spare change there. That that really didn't seem like a lot of time to make one. No, I think that that's true. You know, it's really just a, for the plane to perform ideally, you know, you really just need to be a perfectionist. You know, a lot of times with the fitting the wedge to the the actual plane body, you know, it's not just a matter of getting the wedge to, you know, stick all the way through the plane body for it to to fit appropriately. Same with bedding the iron, you know, with a class, the first time somebody beds an iron, you know, it might take an hour or two to get it right. And a lot of times to the student and for me, when I first started doing it, it felt like you're making no real progress. And so it's hard to, I think, to to come to terms with, you know, spending a lot of time on something that you're not physically going to be able to see um, until it actually comes time to use the plane. I think there's a close analog on, you know, watching a house being constructed there, because, you know, what, what I certainly found is that it comes together very quickly in the beginning. And, you know, you've got this shell of a plane, and then there's a lot of work where it seems like you're making no progress. And then all of a sudden, you kind of done because, you know, the those kind of final details and shaping it to your hand and all the rest of that, that really doesn't take long. But like you say, the, you know, getting a, a wedge to, to seat properly and, you know, make sure that you've got all the tolerances right, that certainly takes a bit of time. But it is a process in the middle there where you, <laughs> you kind of wonder if you're getting it right. And that's maybe a good time to sort of break for the day, go have a beer, come back the next morning when you've got some patience, if you're anything like me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I should say also that in my classes, you know, for the week-long classes that uh, its build is building a hollow and a round um, over the course of five days, but uh, I always bring extra plane bodies and people usually get much farther than than actually building those two planes. And so usually the students are able, any class works to the average, you know, that somebody's going to be way ahead of the group and somebody's going to be way behind the group in a series of 10 people, you know, in a class, ideally work, go at the same pace for everybody involved. And so with the classes I teach, um, there's always something for it's, I'm able to gear it towards the, the slowest person in the class because the person, the people who are ahead of the group always have extra planes to make. And so the goal is to make two functioning planes over the course of five days. Uh, Most people leave with more than that. Well, that's certainly quite inspiring to me. I mean, that really sounds like a very reasonable time investment in terms of getting something. When we're talking about making or buying new or buying antique, I mean, I guess that there's also quite a bit of this that relates to your personal circumstance in terms of proximity to people who are doing similar things you know so I don't know anyone in my area that is regularly using hollow and round so I have no ability to go around to their workshop 
and you know use a, a nicely tuned up plane and then go back to my workshop and say no I've, I've really not tuned this thing properly or hang on I'm getting exactly the same kind of results so this one that I bought from the antique store is a problem and I, and I guess that's you know kind of that same argument on metal body planes you know if you buy a premium one it's coming with some inherent peace of mind that if you're getting it wrong it's you not the tool whereas if you're learning in the beginning and you've got an antique store find it's very easy to draw a conclusion that the tool's the problem when maybe you'd be having the same experience with the premium plane and i think that a lot of times that that's a good way to think about it also in that if you were to go to a garage sale and pick up you know a stanley plane um, and bring it home and use it as you bought it, you know, it probably wouldn't exceed your expectations. However, you know, there's a series of steps that you can bring the plane through that would make its performance similar to that of a brand new Lee Nielsen. And that's the same as it is with antique planes. You know, the way that you purchase an antique plane through eBay or a garage sale um, if you bring it home and try to use it right off the bat, it's not going to exceed your expectations. But at the same time, there's a series of steps that you can bring that plane through that would make it perform similarly to the planes that I sell new. And so, you know, in terms of buying new versus buying antique, you know, the real question is, is whether you have the ability or the desire to spend that time doing metal work with metal planes or woodwork with wood planes. And Matt, um, in terms of making and selling planes and giving classes, are those classes a large portion of your time now? And how's that been affected this year? Has that been quite difficult? Well, so I should say that uh, while I enjoy teaching the classes, I try to limit the amount that I do. Um, I do fancy myself to be a plane maker, not a woodworking instructor. And so I always try to, to focus on, you know, making the tools and producing the actual tools versus teaching classes. And so while I do teach classes, I am primarily a plane maker um, and not an instructor. In that regard, my year has been very different in that, you know, over the last six or seven months, I haven't been going to shows and teaching classes. And really what, you know, that order flow that comes from those two things usually comes, you know, six months or a year down the line. It, it's not immediate. And so while I've been busy over the last several months, you know, I would expect the order flow to be affected in, in the coming year because I do have a backlog and I'm making things that were ordered a long time ago. And Matt, just out of interest, what is that sort of backlog? I mean, I know your website is very clear that, you know, you're not just making these, you know, on a whim and then, you know, keeping them all in stock there. And there's obviously a waiting list. But if someone was interested in ordering something from you, what would they typically expect there? So at, uh, at this stage, I think if somebody were to order a set of planes, it'd be about five months. And, you know, that changes. It's, you know, if somebody orders a large set, you know, overnight, then tomorrow it could easily be six months. I'm fortunate in that it doesn't take a lot of people to keep me busy. But everything that I make, um, for the most part, is made to fulfill orders. I do not keep, and I'm not able to keep things in, in stock for that reason. And so what's now, it's about five months. If you were to go back five or seven years, it was almost two years is what I was telling people, over two years. Well, I was going to say that that certainly sounds reasonable to me. What sounds reasonable? Five months or two years? No, no, no. The five months. You know, if someone today is going and they're ordering a premium saw, I think they're going to quite often get quoted sort of 12 to 16 weeks, you know, for that. And I think it's worth the wait. If I was interested in getting some planes from you and I was, you know, being asked to wait five or six months, I, you know, I certainly think it's, it's not place an order now and then come back in 2025, you know. So that's, uh, you know, certainly encouraging there. In terms of actually making them, do you have specific suppliers where you're getting the, the wood from and whatever? Because I would imagine that the quality of the, of the stock is quite important to you. Yeah. So when I first started making planes, I didn't really have a good source for finding Cordesan Beach. And so that's what I make all the planes out of is, is Cordesan Beach. And so some places had beach, some places had, you know, what was being billed as Cordesan Beach. When I say that 
the stock I use is quarter sawn. You know, I want the uh, ring orientation to be, you know, 90 degrees from the face of the plane, from the side of the plane, not 85 degrees. And so I've heard three different industry standards as far as what quarter sawn means. I've heard, you know, as long as it's within 15 degrees of perpendicular, it's quarter sawn. I've heard as long as it's within 30 degrees of perpendicular, it's quarter sawn. And I've even heard as long as it has linear grain pattern along this, the face, then it's quarter sawn. All of those quoted to me as industry standard. And so what I want is for it to be, you know, a perfect 90 degrees. And so finding somebody who who's able to do that and able to produce that consistently is always a difficult thing. And as a result, for the first five years that I was pursuing customers, I bought as much beach as I could whenever I could. Well, I haven't purchased wood in probably five years, and I don't think I'll need to purchase wood for another five years. So in terms of a good supplier, I don't have one, but I don't currently need one. And Matt, is that a drawed? You know, I'm familiar here with uh, steamed beach. You know, that that seems to be what we get down here for European steamed beach. Is this, you know, strictly air dried and, you know, taking a while to do that? It's not strictly air dried. The material that I'm working off of now, I cut down and um, milled with a friend. And so that is air dried. The tree, I think we dropped maybe seven or eight years ago, and I'm just starting to use it now. So that is air dried, but I've also, you know, when I've purchased from different different people, some of it has been kiln dried, vacuum kilns, steamed beach I've used also. So yeah, it's uh, nothing specific in that regard. But at the same time, you know, I'm not purchasing and I've never purchased wood that I use anytime soon. The route that a wood goes through when it comes into my possession is it sits for for years and years before it actually gets used. So the drying process doesn't necessarily affect the end product, just the the actual color of the wood. And Matt, with it, I mean, I guess that historically beech was the, you know, was the go-to wood for making a wooden planes. Do you get people requesting sort of exotic species there? Do you, you know, do you advocate anything else? Or is that kind of what, what you think they should be made out of? Well, so I copy a historical design well, I, I should say that uh, I make faithful reproductions of Larry and Don at Old Street Tool. I, ma- I make faithful reproductions of their faithful reproductions. And so um, in terms of the, the wood choice, you know, with, with such a, a high percentage of antique planes being made out of beach, beach is the appropriate choice simply because you know, it was the historical wood of choice. Therefore, it's my present wood of choice. You know, there are good substitutes. There are good alternatives to beach. But at the same time, it's, you know, a good substitute, probably not ideal. I made a lot of planes out of cherry. The first planes that I made for myself were out of cherry. It's a great wood. It's a lot easier or a little bit easier to work than beaches. And it certainly holds up to the use that, you know, my shop put them through and what the what I imagine the average shop puts them through. You know, beech is a more durable wood than cherry would be. It's a little bit harder. You know, if you were using these planes all day, every day, uh, the way that they probably were used centuries ago, then cherry would probably be a little bit softer than ideal. Um, But most of us aren't using these planes all day, every day. Um, and that's just not the environment that the, the planes are used in. And so cherry is a good, it's a good solid substitute, but at the same time, it, it's a substitute. Fair enough. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, moving from the body of the plane to the blades, do you, do you want to share a little bit about, you know, what blades you're putting in there and the process around that? Yeah. So I use um, the tapered molding plane irons blanks that Lee Nielsen sells. And so then I grind them, I heat treat them, I sharpen them before they're they're sent out. And so everything I send out, every plane that I send out is uh, leaving my shop sharpened to the same degree that, that I use the plane. And so while companies that sell new bench planes will often recommend uh, stropping the, the cutting edge for 
you know, that final jump in performance, I actually ask my customers not to touch the edge until they've actually used it. You know, the way that I'm sending them again is the way that, that I use them in the way that, you know, sharpened to the degree that I think they should be sharpened. And so the way that they, they leave my shop is able to work in, you know, maple or figured maple. I think that's fantastic as well if you, you know, if you're getting it, because certainly for me, that's the kind of thing that you can use as a, as a benchmark for how it feels and, you know, take it to a typical piece of stock in your workshop, whether that's pine or oak or whatever you're usually working on and see what it does. And you've always then got that as the reference point to say, this is what sharp and tuned properly. And I guess maybe even you know, stuff like depth of cut, just knowing that this is how it should be used. You've done it, you've used it, you've got the kind of shaving that, uh, you know, matches a shaving in the box and you've got that baseline that you can always you know go back to in your head as to whether or not you've sharpened it enough or set it properly absolutely it's you know everybody always talks about what is sharp and i always say that you know a sharp tool is a tool that's easier to use than you expect it to be and so it's you know no matter how many times you've pushed a plane once once you go and sharpen it at least me, it's a, you know, a freshly sharpened plane is a, a joy to use. And it's certainly performing better than than it was five minutes ago. And so, you know, a sharp tool is a tool that that exceeds your your expectations. Yeah, I certainly think so. Look, I'll also just talking to that one of the things I've done is I bought a little uh, pad of paper that I keep in the in the workshop. And it, when I got a premium plane out of the box, I could take it, I could hold the blade against it, and I can see how it cut. And that just gave me a reference point, that little bit of, uh, you know, security that, you know, now when I go and sharpen, I test it on exactly the same paper, same angle, you know, same size piece of paper. And I can have a look at that. And I can say, well, you know, it's torn the paper now, whereas it's supposed to slice it, I've got my baseline, and I know I've done it well, because Certainly, I would think that when I was starting my sharpening journey, there was no guarantee that a, a blade I touched was sharper by the time I'd finished than when I started. That's very familiar. You know, one of the things I found really interesting in your book, and I guess it's maybe a preconception I had, but certainly the first time I used a hollow and round, I would use it, I guess, in the sort of traditional sense, whereas your methodology of, of these twin resting points and using that to you know, guide the presentation of the plane properly. That's quite a deviation from what I expected. But, you know, how, how did you come up with that? Because, you know, once you've used it, it's like so simple and profound and better, but it certainly wasn't something that was obvious to me. Well, so when I got that first set of antique planes, there was a fine woodworking article by Graham Blackburn back in the 80s, where he wrote an article about using hollows and rounds. And he did it the complete opposite way of the way I wrote in my book, um, meaning that he started his rounds upon the face of a chamfer and his hollows, uh, he started on a, a square corner, whereas I um, have people start their hollows upon a, a chamfer and the rounds upon the, the heresies of a rabbit. And frankly, I, I think I kind of dumbed my way into the situation. I, I think I got it backwards in my basement one time and just kind of went with that. And so that's how I ended up using that method was, I think, through a mistake. Um, when Don McConnell came out with his DVD, a lot of what I did and the way that I was using them was, was justified by his video at that time. But as far as my explanation in the, you know, what is the book goes, the specific process that's in the book, you know, I had a way that I was able to predictably and repeatably make molding profiles for myself. But the book is a product of me trying to explain that process to many people over several years and just coming up with a way that, you know, can be written in sentences and paragraphs that make sense versus, you know, just having a process in my mind that, that I understand. And so the, the book is a product of, you know, me explaining that, you know, what's in my mind many times over um, to various people that share similar interests. Certainly for me, I've found it to be a much more predictable way of getting the result I was expecting. And, you know, maybe that's a stepping stone for some people. You know, when I started planning wood, I used winding sticks a lot. You know, I now tend to rock the board on the bench and, you know, whack off the corners based on, you know, on feel. But certainly in the beginning, having something that was 
repeatable and easy in terms of getting a flat board help me plain boards and you know when i look at your book i think your book really would help you know anybody who wanted to get into this get a good result by using a process that maybe you know maybe five years down the line they say okay i'll do it the graham blackburn way and you know that's great i'm sure in the 19th century if you were doing it all day every day for a living you know you did it very very quickly by feel but it certainly takes you a while i would suggest to get to that place and so at the end of my book i said that you know the the book is really a a place for people to start the goal of the book is for somebody who knows nothing about this tool to have a predictable and repeatable process to go from a to z with this type of tool and so the book goes over, you know, not only how to set it up and how to maintain the plane and what the plane is and, you know, why it may have a relevance in your shop, but then, of course, how to, to predictably and repeatably make a profile with a tool that has neither fence nor depth stop and is seemingly difficult to steer. And so the goal of the, the book is to, to give you a process but at the same time, the more you use the tools, the less you'll, you know, be as calculated as the book describes. You know, the, the book is very precise in, you know, laying out different things to get very different features to get very specific results. But the more you use the tool, the more you have the ability to, you know, manually steer the tool, uh, the less calculated you'll be in your actual, the process of laying out the chamfers and rabbits. And so the, the book gives you, as, as you alluded to, it gives you that place to start, you know, five years down the road after you've made, you know, many, many linear feet of molding profiles, you'll, you know, use the calculated process, I imagine, less and less, um, just because it's not necessarily, you know, worth the, the time to, you know, have the edges of the rabbits be 30 degrees as opposed to 35. But for somebody who's using them the first time, you know, this hopefully that the book gives the the reader and the user a process for for making what they want, however they define that. Certainly from, you know, my reading of the book, the book feels like it's got those origins in teaching people from the beginning. You know, it's the the molding plain Bible, you know, to really start at Genesis and, you know, and, and, and get you from there through to where you're ready to go and experiment and, and play. I mean, certainly by the time we're looking at projects at the back of the book, I mean, there's some pretty complicated profiles in there. So it's, it's certainly not a molding planes 101. I mean, it really does run the gamut. I think it's clear that there's this intent of teaching people and making it accessible. And, you know, I think that's what probably makes the book great. Thank you. It's, uh, you know, the any molding profile is just a series of convex and concave shapes. And that's what this, these planes do is they make, you know, a range of convex and concave shapes. And once you're able to predictably produce results with the number four round, you can follow the same process to, to do the same thing with the number 18s. Once you're able to predictably make convex shapes, you know, it doesn't matter what size it is. Um, if you have the plane to do it, it's the same process that follows. And so all those complex molding profiles that are in the back is really just a buildup of the same process. You know, it's everything is just that series of convex and concave shapes. And if you view the molding profile not as filleted cove with a reverse OG and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, three convex and two concave shapes produced as said at the beginning of the book, you know, any profile is is a very straightforward process. That's what you're doing, at least with the process I described, is you're not creating an OG, you're creating one convex and one concave shape that happens to meet in a smooth transition. You certainly cover how to make that smooth transition. I think that was one of the things I struggled with before the book is I, I tended to take that one plane past too many and then wonder why, you know, I had a little bit of a little bit of a change of shape where I didn't expect it to be. So I think that for me was one of the things I really liked about what I'm calling the twin resting points. But in terms of that method of having the shavings join up and say that, okay, as soon as you see this joining up, you know that that's the sign to stop. I mean, that's a very clear visual indicator for someone working with it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're not necessarily done when you get that single shaving, but you know, if the facets that the planes are riding upon are uniform, then it it allows you to, to know that you're uniformly progressing throughout a length, you know, whether it's 16 inches or six feet or 16 feet, you know, making a uniform rabbit is a straightforward process, whether you do it on a table saw, a router table, or, you know, whether working the gauge lines with a rabbit plane, you know, making a, a uniform rabbit is a straightforward process. And so if, if the rabbit is uniform, then the regression of that rabbit should also be uniform. And that's, you know, I think what's good about the process I described is it allows you to, to very conscientiously, you know, progress through the, the profile. You know, don't take 30 passes and see where you are, but watch the regression of the, you know, those two points. And Matt, I sit and I work in quite a limited shop space. You know, I think that the real sort of effective use is kind of a nine by nine by 12. I mean, I've got a little bit more, but my, my boys have got a little workbench in that area. When you when you're working with the sticking board and you know you're laying these kind of profiles out, I guess that the better you get at the layout, the less dependent you are in terms of running the entire molding in one go on a, on a sticking board. Because I, I certainly don't have a you know 16 foot uh, long bench if I need 16 feet of of molding. Yeah, for the most part, the rabbits define the the final piece. And so if the rabbits, if, if you needed to make the same profile in, in multiple pieces, uh, for instance, if you were making, you know, cornice molding for your living room or something like that, where you certainly, you may have the ability to make an eight foot length, but you don't have the ability to make, you know, a hundred feet. The rabbits really do define the final piece. And so again, you know, making uniform rabbits is a straightforward process, whether you do it on a table saw or to gauge lines with a rabbit plane, you know, making those uniform rabbits is, is straightforward. And then it's just a matter of getting rid of the corners that the planes ride upon the registration points. And so if the rabbits are uniform, the end product is going to be, you know, very close to uniform. That makes a lot of sense. And Matt, if, you know, if someone was interested in getting into this, you know, we've kind of spoken about the selection and I mean, I'll certainly let you comment on that again, you know, in terms of what you would recommend for, you know, the the first couple of planes someone gets, but what would be a good project for someone to start with? Is it, you know, going and making a picture frame or is there something that you would suggest to people as a, as a good starting point if they wanted to get into this? So picture frames are, as as far as quick woodworking projects go, picture frames are a perfect application for this type of tool. When I got started pursuing customers, my goal was to uh, make the picture frame the the new wedding present that we woodworkers give out as gifts uh, instead of cutting boards. (laughs) But uh, yeah, a picture frame is a, a good place to start because you know, a, a picture frame is just going to be that profile. And so it allows you to quickly use the planes and see the final product, the final result, and, and have a physical piece to actually hold in your hands. So a picture frame is a great place to start. When I learned dovetails, I sat down and I did, you know, kind of a dovetail a day. And I, and I know that sounds cliched, but I used uh, December last year to try and make a bunch of wooden boxes. So I would get through a couple of dovetails in a day and, you know, every four days I'd throw out a box. And by the end of uh, Christmas, I was making some, you know, reasonably decent boxes as far as I was concerned. So this strikes me as a, a really good project to get familiar with these is just sit down and allocate a Christmas holiday or whatever to you know, to making a picture frame a day. And, you know, by the time you've got 10 or 20 of those out, you should certainly feel very, very comfortable with it. And if your house is anything like my house, then there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of application for picture frames. It's, it never seems to be enough for my wife. Admittedly, my wife does watercolor painting. So maybe that's a bit of a unique situation. But, you know, certainly I think a, a nice handmade frame, like you say, giving that to your folks and, you know, relatives and friends, I, I don't think anyone would be unhappy with getting a nice picture frame, handmade picture frame as a present. I agree. I agree. And it's also, you know, it gives the person an opportunity to, you know, not only use the tools, but also lay out the profiles. Because a lot of times people will ask, well, you know, I want to make a picture frame, but what profile should I use? You know, going online and looking at 
profiles that are online. You know, a lot of places will have, you know, the actual profile upon their website. You know, you can go and copy that and use the process I describe in the book for actually laying out and executing that profile. If you have picture frames in your house, trying to reproduce those is certainly well within your ability to do. Um, it's just a, you know, a matter of having a strategy for producing a predictable result. And hopefully the book gives the reader that process. I certainly can't fault the description. I must be honest, the first time I saw one of the diagrams, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of colors on some of them, you know, the, the browns and the greens and the blues and whatever. And, you know, I looked at that and I was a little bit taken aback, particularly with some of the more complicated shapes, you know, because there's quite a lot of little steps. But when you work through it and do the green ones and then do the brown ones and, you know, progress through the, the order in the book, I found it remarkably easy to follow those processes. And, you know, what I'm going to say now sounds probably sounds terrible. I hope my mom's not listening to the show. But, you know, what I found with making the boxes and I'm going to, you know, extend it to the picture frames is I can certainly go and work through a range of profiles from the start of the book. And the ones I'm really happy with, I can keep. And the ones I'm not happy with, I can give to a variety of friends because they're getting an individual picture frame. You know, they're not getting a, a series of picture frames. They're not looking at the one I try to match in my living room. They're just getting a picture frame from me. And I still think that people really enjoy getting that handmade gift. So you can probably get rid of a few of the mistakes, you know, assuming they're not too terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, ma making one of anything is very easy to do. It's the, the second one that has to match is hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just in closing, I mean, when I started, I mean, I struggled a little bit getting the wedge set and the projection set and whatever, but, you know, it feels like something that if anyone's got a fear of of these tools, they're, they're really not that intimidating. And, and I think I sent you a picture, you know, of one of the pieces of work I had to do where my my father wanted a piece of the molding that had broken in his house, you know, replicated. And once I got into it, it really wasn't difficult to do the simple profiles that I guess that many of us would, you know, look at the skirting board and say, okay, I'm going to go buy the skirting board from a place that makes skirting board. But have you got any advice for people just getting into this and how to go about it? Um, yeah, choosing the right planes is, you know, the, the right planes for me might be the different than the right planes for somebody else. And so for somebody who's looking to introduce this type of tool into their work, you know, making that first purchase, um, you know, whether it's antique or new is, is a hard thing to do. You know, I always equate it to looking at carving gouges. Like if you were to look at the offering of carving gouges by a company, there's hundreds of sweeps and, and options for the, the shape of the blade and everything else. It, it's hard if, if you're interested in getting into carving, it's, it's hard to know where to begin because there's just so many options. But you know, the beauty is, is that once, once you have your first carving gouge, you'll know what you'll want your second one to be. Um, and I think that that's the same with the hollows and rounds is, uh, you know, when you look at the, the options to begin with, there's a, there's a lot there, you know, I offer 18 different standard sizes and have made, you know, a total of 24, 28 different sizes of hollows and rounds. And so that's a lot of options for somebody who's looking to to get started. But like carving gouges, you know, once you have that first pair in your hands, you're you're going to know exactly what to get with the with the second. It's just a matter of, you know, not buying something entirely wrong with that first pair of planes. And so I always recommend it to people, you know, starting with a, a pair of number fours and number sixes, number eights, something like that is going to be a great place for anybody to start, whether you're talking about, you know, making small furniture, or architectural work, you know, those sizes are uh, very popular and included in much of what we see, you know, especially the, the sizes fours and six. And then really, you know, if you have that single pair of planes, you're able to do a lot with a single pair of planes. I think in my book, I have 40 or something molding profiles done with a single pair of planes. I know when I go to shows, I have a stack of molding profiles. It's just 30 profiles that I made with one pair of planes. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it is just a, a series of, you know, the same circle segment combined in a different order, a 
you know, a different percentage of the arc. By introducing that second pair of planes, it's at that stage that you really, you know, recognize the versatility that the tools both allow and encourage. And so starting with two pairs of planes is is a great place to begin. You know, so I always recommend, you know, a pair of fours and eights or a pair of sixes and tens, depending upon the scale of furniture that you intend to make. You know, with those two pairs of planes, you're able to do quite a bit. You know, every pair of planes you add exponentially increases your options. If you can make 30 or 40 profiles with a single pair of planes, by adding that second pair, you're well into the hundreds. You know, you buy far more than double your options that you have just by adding one more pair of planes. And so, you know, if your range of furniture, is extraordinarily wide, you may end up with several, many pairs of hollows and rounds. But a lot of us hobbyists, you know, have settled on a scale of furniture to which we work. And so you can settle upon a, a portion of the the range of hollows and rounds. You know, for me and my work and my interests, up until the uh, high boy I'm presently making. So if we forget about that, that high boy, um, everything that I make, I could do with a you know sizes two four six eight ten um you know whether those are the whether that's the perfect set for you and your shop well you know that depends on on what you make you know you may not have any use for the number twos but you may use the number 12s or 18s more than more than i but like the carving gouges you don't need every you know sweep and every blade shape to produce what you want. And in the same vein, you don't need every pair of hollows and rounds to get started in introducing this tool into your work. And, you know, introducing this, this tool into your work is, was an important thing for me and my craft, simply because it, again, allowed me to make what I wanted, not limited by what I have. And, you know, whether hollows and rounds have a place in everybody's shop, they probably don't, but they probably do have a place in a lot more shops than they currently are, because it does offer the user that that idea of infinity, you know, the same thing that all hand tools do. It, it offers the end user that idea of infinity and in making what you want, not limited by the tooling of, of what you have. Matt, I think, you know, on that note, I'd, I'd really just like to thank you for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate the advice and the insights that you've given. And I'm sure that everyone listening to this will have learned something. And I guess there'll be some people going out and buying a copy of the book. So, you know, certainly thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, I thank you greatly. I always appreciate talking to people who, who share similar interests and the internet is an amazing thing in that here we are pretty far apart and it, it's nice to, to talk to people that, that again, share similar interests because we, we spend a lot of time in our basements and in our garages and uh, the internet affords us to actually meet people that, that again, share that interest. So thank you.